Thank you once again for letting me come back to Open Arms. It's always nice to visit, and uh, it's cool to see this church growing. Even if Justin's always ducking me when I come, he's always out of town. I just think he doesn't like to hear me preach, but whatever. No, I'm kidding. I'm really honored that he asked me to come speak. Anytime a pastor, pastors don't like to give up their pulpit so to speak. And so uh, when they ask you to teach for them, it's, it really is an honor. And so I'm glad to be able to, to be here and be with you. Here's the problem, though. If you were here for the last time I was here, you know I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. And there's a subtle difference. There's some overlap, but there's differences. Preachers typically are good at firing people up and getting them excited and pushing your emotional buttons and all the stuff that good preaching should do. Teachers are usually more intent on filling you, giving you more information, helping you grow in your discipleship. So I lean to the latter rather than the former, but at the same time, I think a good exposition of Scripture contains both because I believe that Scripture itself is more than enough to move people when it's presented accurately and when we just get out of the way and let God's Word be what it is. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I have a, a daunting task that I've put before me, which is we're going to cover 77% of the Bible in under an hour, way under an hour, <laughs> don't panic, 77, we're, uh, two three-fourths, I wasn't a math major, three-fourths of God's word is what we're going to look at. And that may seem daunting. You may think like, oh goodness, I didn't come for a lecture. It's not going to be that. The most powerful thing we can do for someone to give them a sense of identity is familiarize them with their story. That's why one of the worst things that different uh, colonialist or, or empire regimes throughout history have done if they want to subjugate a people is they've separated them from their story. They've denied them their history sometimes literally and physically removing them through bondage, through slavery, sometimes emotionally or psychologically through teaching or, or speaking falsehood until it becomes part of somebody's internal narrative so that how they see themselves is controlled by the narrative that someone wants them to see. So what Scripture does is it gives us our story of who we are as God's people. Scripture gives us our identity, and that identity transcends all of our earthly affinities, all of our earthly identities, all of our uh, tribalisms that we all face, and it roots us in God's plan. But here's the problem. Most people don't know that story. Most people think the story of God is, God created the world, you're a sinner, Jesus died so you can go to heaven, not hell. So believe in Jesus, and you go to heaven when you die, end of story. I mean, I grew up in evangelical Christianity. That is the gospel in many people's eyes. But that's not the gospel nearly in its fullness. In its fullness, the gospel is the story of God, who He is, who we are in Him, and what He's doing in the world. And that's the story that we're going to look at. So, I'm going to be moving fast through these slides, so I'm really keeping our tech guys in the back on their toes today. We're going to look at the Hebrew Bible. That is the Old Testament. 
what we call the Old Testament, what I call the forgotten part of the Bible, because most Christians don't read it. We jump to the New Testament, we jump to the epistles, the stuff about Jesus, and we forget all that Old Testament stuff. But the Old Testament, it's daunting. It contains all of these sections. It's a library of ancient literature. You have the law books, the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And they're confusing, and they're weird, and they contain crazy stuff. Then you have the historical books, and they're even more confusing and even weirder. And all of these stories about history of what's happening. Then you have this giant chunk of poetic books, and they don't even fit chronologically with the other stuff. They're just kind of mixed all around, and you've got Psalms, and you've got Proverbs. You have a, 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 a really almost R-rated sex poem called the Song of Songs. You've got Ecclesiastes, which is the most depressing book in the Old Testament, and they're right next to each other. You, it's, it's just, it gets crazier and crazier the more you go, and then you come to the prophetic books. Oh my goodness. Trying to understand the prophetic books is like trying to eat jello with chopsticks. It is unbelievably hard to wrap your mind around because they aren't in order. And they don't tell you who they're talking to. And so you have to know the historical books for the prophetic books to make sense. Oh, and there are major prophets, the big ones. And then there's a book called, the, or 12 books called the Minor Prophets. And they're the ones with weird names like Nahum and Habakkuk and Obadiah. Those books that most of you may not even know are in the Bible. So this is the Old Testament. But here's the thing. For about the first 300 years of the church's existence, whenever the gospel was preached, guess what they were reading and preaching? These books. See, churches would get what they could from the New Testament when a letter came and got circulated or somebody made a copy of a New Testament letter, the church would get it. But the scripture that they all had in common were these. And the story that they all had in common was this one. And this is a chart of the whole Old Testament laid out and it looks intimidating. This is not a survey class. We're going to start with the basic, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the world, the nations. And in Genesis 1 through 11, that's the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11 is the preface. It's to get you to the point of Genesis 12, which is the passage that we're going to look at in a second. But Genesis 1 through 11 is like the voiceover at the beginning of the movie. It's explaining all the background, or previously on the episode of whatever show you're watching, it's telling us what we need to know to get us to where the action is going to start, and that's in Genesis 12. But in Genesis 1 through 11, God creates, and He blesses, and He gives humanity a mandate. That mandate is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Which implies that there's going to be some struggle that God has prepared humanity for. So that's what it's set to happen. But then immediately in the next section, there is rebellion, sin, and death. Genesis 3, sin enters into the human experience. And because of that rebellion that the first humans enacted against God, sin becomes this virus that takes hold. Sin is the original pandemic, and there's no masks or vaccines for it. It, it winds its way through humanity, and it results in this ongoing downward spiral of evil. So that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, 
It says God is sorry that he made humanity because of how wicked they were and how much they had ruined creation. It's the darkest point in the Old Testament. And so then in the section of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, you have God sending the flood, which was a stopgap measure to curb this spread of evil by wiping out humanity that had been rebelling and, and, and basically just doing everything the opposite of what God had mandated creation for. The idolatry, the wickedness, the separation, even after the flood, it still continues. And as the people spread out over the earth in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, sin is not dealt with. The image bearer of God is a disfigured image. And so as humanity spreads, as, as the world continues to go forward, sin is right there with it. Evil is right there with it. Decay and death. Here's the thing. This is the most provable doctrine in the world. The doctrine of sin and evil. Why? Because all you have to do is turn on the TV. All you, every parent in here, if you're a parent, you know the doctrine of evil very well. You've never had to teach your child to be selfish. You've never had to teach your child to hit. You definitely had to teach your child to share, to not hit, to not be selfish. Why? Because we're hardwired towards self-centeredness, rebellion, and sin. That's in our human nature. And every religion and every culture in the world has tried to say, well, where did it come from? How do we get rid of it? And some say, well, just ignore it and don't believe that it exists. And that's how you achieve enlightenment. And others say, no, it's because there are these warring gods. And so you want to make sure you pray to the right God, not the wrong God. And there are many, many other ways that people have tried to deal with this problem of evil. But what the God of the Bible does is he says, I'm going to, I'm going to undo it from the inside. I'm going to deal with it at the root of the problem. And that's where we see Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the outline for the rest of the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the mission statement of the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And that's a bold claim. Now I have to prove it. So let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So I've laid it out so you can kind of see the, how it's structured a little bit, uh, but depending on what translation you're reading from, it may read a little different. This is just sort of a wooden, literalistic translation. And Yahweh, and Yahweh is the name for God. It's the, every time in your English Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. The Hebrew word underneath that that's being translated is God's proper name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And so the, the Jewish tradition was you just write the four consonants. And so when I teach, I follow that tradition. Yahweh said to Abram, this was Abram's original name. It means exalted father. And he's going to get a name change later to Abraham, father of many. But we're not there yet. God said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's household. Everything you know, leave it. Go to the land I will show you. And then if he does, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then this line here is interesting. Some translations say you will be a blessing. Other translations are a command. Be a blessing. The Hebrew is the exact same. Only context 
can tell you which it is. So he could either be telling Abram, you're going to be a blessing, or he could be commanding Abram, hey, go be a blessing. Either way, the result's the same. And then he gives them promise. The ones blessing you, I'll bless. And the ones cursing you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is what we see. God makes these promises. And we'll buzz through these. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Make your name great. You will be a blessing. The ones blessing you, I'll bless. The ones cursing you, I'll curse. These are all things God's going to do for Abraham. And then for the purpose, so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God calls a wandering Aramean, a nobody, a pagan Gentile. Abraham is not Jewish. Judaism is not a thing yet. Circumcision is hundreds of years into the future. The law is hundreds of years into the future. He is a pagan Gentile in an idolatrous family in modern-day Iraq, somewhere in the Middle East, that area. And God calls him and says, if you go, I'm going to do all this. And you are going to be the means by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's exactly what happens. God calls Abram, and he makes this promise, this covenant, this binding agreement that he is going to use Abraham's seed. Seed is an agricultural metaphor. It means children or offspring, but it literally is seed, like what you plant in the ground. And in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, three times God affirms this promise that he's going to do to Abraham's seed. And so, Abraham, now here's the problem, Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's old and childless. How's God going to do anything with his seed? He doesn't have any seed. So, God miraculously provides a child for Abraham. Now first, Abram and his wife try to catch a plan to do it themselves, and Ishmael is born through dubious means, but he is the legal, legitimate heir to Abraham. But God says, no, the promise is not going to come through Ishmael. I love Ishmael. I'll take care of Ishmael. i got no problem with Ishmael, but I made a promise, and it's going to come supernaturally. Your wife, Sarah, who's in her 80s, maybe 90s, she's going to have a baby. And then she has Isaac. And it's the younger Isaac that the promise goes through. Then Isaac also has two sons. Years later, Isaac has two sons, but this time they're, this time they're twins. One's older, one's younger. One comes out first, one comes out second. You know how twins are. They kind of fight for who's the oldest, even though they're both born within a few minutes of each other. But the oldest is Esau. Esau should be the heir. He should be who the promise passes to, who the inheritance goes through. Once again... God says, I love Esau. I'm fine with Esau. I'm going to take care of Esau. But Jacob is who the promise is going to go through. And so that's what happens. The promise continues through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become, as the family grows and expands over the years, the 12 heads of tribes. And collectively, all together, this family is known as Israel, which is what God changed Jacob's name to. This is the story of the entire book of Genesis. The beginning of the Bible is this family's story. All of this is taking place back in, in, in early, before 2000 BC or around 2000 BC, like 2000 years before Jesus. 
And all of that period, the patriarchs, kind of hard to see on the screens here, but the patriarchs, that's what they're called, this family, they end up having to go down to Egypt because there's a famine. And they're welcomed. And for, in Egypt, they live for about 400 years. And then at the end of 400 years, there's a whole new, I mean, think about 400 years. That's longer than America has been a country. It's a long time whole new identity. And after 400 years of slavery, the people don't know who they are anymore. They've been surrounded by the gods of Egypt. They've been living in the pagan lands. And so eventually another Pharaoh, who, not the Pharaoh that welcomed them in and provided shelter, but a new Pharaoh arises. And you all know the story. You've seen the Charlton Heston movies. You've seen the Prince of Egypt, Veggie Tales, whatever. You get your Sunday school understanding of the Exodus from God calls Moses and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Come on, come on, church. Come on. You got to be quick on this. Let my people go. Okay. Who are my people? The family of Israel has gone from about 70 people to tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands but a large number. And they are enslaved and they cry out over and over. And finally, God remembers his promise that he had made to Abraham because God hasn't forgotten about all that. He says, okay, now it's time to get my people back into the land that I promised their ancestor. And so what God does is God makes the covenant. God sends Moses. Moses rescues his people, Israel, out of Egypt. And God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He brings them out of Egypt into the desert to Mount Sinai where he dwells as the burning bush originally and then as the fire and the thunder and the cloud and the smoke. God's presence. And he brings them to himself and he says, now here's what's going to happen. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And you are going to be a kingdom of priests. This is Exodus chapter 19. A kingdom of priests. Now what does a priest do? A priest's job is to stand between the God and the worshiper and to mediate. That's a priest's job. Offer the sacrifices, pray the prayer, pronounce the blessing, teach the sacred text. That's the job of a priest. God tells Israel, you... Y'all, as we'd say, are going to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, Israel is going to be the means by which the nations learn about and return to God. This is the plan. This is what God calls Israel. When you hear about, oh, the Bible, Israel is God's chosen people. This is what they were chosen for to be the means by which the pagan Gentile nations enter into relationship with God, learn about God, to be a kingdom of priests. That's the plan. There's a problem. Israel enters into the land under Moses and Joshua in the Exodus and the conquest. This is around 1400 BC, 1200 BC, somewhere in there. They enter into the land, and then as soon as they enter the land, they break the covenant. In fact, before they ever enter the land, they break the covenant. There's this whole episode in the later half of the book of Exodus where God is literally talking to Moses and giving him the directions and the, 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 the covenant charter constitution of what's going to be his covenant people. 
And what are the people at the, doing at the bottom of the mountain while that's happening? They're partying around a golden calf. And God threatens to wipe them out and to start over with Moses. He did it with Noah. He could do it again. And Moses intercedes. Moses pleads for God's people. And God relents. He listens. God lets himself be persuaded by Moses' intercession and Moses' prayer. And he turns from what he was going to do. This shows us that this God is not like the God of gods of the nations, where the gods of the nations, all you had to do, you say the right word, you give a good enough gift, and if you're lucky, the gods will do what you want. That's how it worked. The God of Israel is a relational God. He doesn't seek sacrifice for its own sake. He doesn't seek money for its own sake. He doesn't seek you having to pronounce a certain word or say a certain name in a certain way, and then he'll give you the... No. That's not how the God of Israel worked. The God of Israel was a father who wanted a relationship with not just his people, but then that he wanted that to extend to all the nations of the earth that he created. And so the problem is what happens when the rescue vehicle that you send breaks down? What happens if the lifeline that you want to throw to a drowning world cuts itself off? That's what God's faced with in the Old Testament with Israel breaking the covenant. He's faced with his own chosen people. What happens when the priests don't do their job? The nations don't hear. The people don't have a relationship with God. This is the breakdown that the Old Testament presents through its pages and centuries of history. You have this whole history then after Israel enters the land, you have the period of the judges. It's like the Wild West the dark days. There's no established king. God is supposed to be Israel's king, but Israel's not listening to her king. They're just doing what they want to do. And over and over in the book of Judges, you see a downward spiral of sin and evil. All of these Bible heroes in the book of Judges, surprisingly, very few of them are actually heroic, including the big guy himself, Samson. Terrible leader. Terrible hero. And that's the point of judges. They are not to be emulated as the, the height of heroism, like Jephthah, Samson, Gideon. A lot of them are sad tales of what not to do. A few at the beginning are good, but then it's just a downward trend. And so by the time the book of Judges ends, during the era when this is when the book of Ruth takes place, everybody's just doing their own thing. The book of Judges ends with the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's people have become just like the world. So God raises up one final judge named Samuel. And Samuel is also a prophet. And God tells Samuel, you, the, actually the people are begging. And that we want a king. We need a king. All the other countries have kings. Why don't we have a king? We worship this invisible God who lives in an empty tent. Not a grand temple with a visible idol that we can worship. That's what they were clamoring for. That's what they were wanting. And God once again relents. And he tells Samuel, Okay, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But warn them what's going to happen. And Samuel does. And he anoints the first king of Israel. And he's a tall, handsome, presidential-looking candidate. His name's Saul. He becomes the first king. And things are good for a while. But then Saul's heart is never inclined towards God. Saul's heart is always inclined towards basically getting himself off the hook. And when confronted with his faults, 
he tries to resist. When, when instead of repenting, he makes excuses on and on. And finally, God says, I'm actually done. You, you have forfeited this role that I called you to. And I'm going to raise up a new person, somebody who I'm going to look at the heart, not the outward stature, but I'm going to look at this person on the inside and I'm going to make a choice based on my own criteria. And it's going to be this ruddy little nobody shepherd boy from a backwater town called Bethlehem. And so God anoints, Samuel anoints that man, that boy, David, and he becomes the king of Israel. And God makes promise to David and a covenant with David. And, and David, again, not the greatest hero. I mean, early in David's life, he's great. As his life goes, again, downward spiral. The end of David's life is a sad, sad tale. But through it all, God promised. But one day, there's going to be a, a king who's going to be the king of all kings, who's going to rule as better than David could ever even imagine, in the line of David, one of David's descendants who is in the line of Abraham, God's keeping the whole big picture in mind, and he's going to come and he's going to rule, but that's not going to be for a long time. And in the meantime, if you don't turn back to me, your country will be destroyed. Israel doesn't listen. David's son Solomon inherits the throne. As soon as Solomon dies, the country splits apart. Civil war. Israel in the north, which is the ten tribes that hated David's descendants, and Judah in the south, which is the tribe loyal to David's descendant. And so the tribe in the north, they go on, and, and none of the kings in the north are good. All of them are pagan. The first thing they do is build golden calves in the north. That should be a big warning sign to anybody that's read their scriptures, but they don't care because at this point they're so thoroughly pagan. So eventually God sends them prophet after prophet. He sends them people like Elijah, Elisha. These are the days of Elijah. We were just singing it earlier. Well, this is what we're singing about. And God sends them to repent, to turn back. The message of the prophets could be summarized in one word, turn. That's the message, turn. Return to me. But they don't listen. And in 722 BC, Assyria comes, the big world empire, and they destroy the northern kingdom. And they almost destroy the southern kingdom as well. The southern kingdom, there's a couple of kings that are pretty decent. Not very many, but a few. And, and, but again, the people continue the downward spiral of sin and evil. And so finally, God says, warning after warning after warning, and then he, at the end, he says, it's too late. We're done. And so in the 6th century, Babylon, the next empire, they wipe out the southern kingdom. And not only do they destroy the southern kingdom, but they take all of the main movers and shakers of Israel's society, all of the leaders, all of the best, the brightest, the youngest, all of the upwardly mobile Israelites, anyone who could be of any kind of threat, and they cart them all the way back to Babylon in chains. And so Israel is exiled. The temple is destroyed and in captivity. While they're in captivity, there's this young priest named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was this young man. He was just about to be the age where he could start serving in the temple, and then all that happened. And so he gets carted off in chains to Babylon. And God appears to Ezekiel and he gives him a message about his people. 
And it's a long book, and there's lots of, of, of ups and downs. But in, in Ezekiel, in this chapter, this is one of those chapters in the Bible to highlight, circle, underline, whatever you do. God makes this promise. Look what he says. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. That's a priestly image. Before priests could serve in the temple, they had to literally be sprinkled with water to be cleansed. Israel's a kingdom of priests. God's saying, I'm going to keep my promise. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats, a heart that's malleable, a heart that can respond to me, not the stony hard heart that has characterized your people for so long. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Now, at the same time, this is a promise. God's saying, hey, my plan is still going to happen, but it's going to involve a significant upgrade. At the same time that Ezekiel's getting this message as a prisoner in Babylon, way back in Jerusalem, an old prophet who's about to be taken out of the city as the city is destroyed once and for all, Jeremiah receives the same message from God for the people in Jerusalem, the ones who remain, who are still holding on to the idea of rebellion against Babylon and being the great people. Jeremiah gets a message that says, look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, all of Abraham's descendants. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Israel had been unfaithful in the marriage. God had divorced them because of that. But God's saying after, and Jeremiah literally says, God tells Israel, I am divorcing you. But after that, Jeremiah looks forward to this day when God's going to make a new covenant. And it won't be like the old one. He goes on to say, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. So now the prophets have announced there's going to be a time when God's going to give us a heart transplant, when he's going to cleanse us when he's going to give us the ability to be faithful and to love him by putting his spirit within us, and it will center around the forgiveness of sins. So this is what's happening. They broke the covenant. Israel cut their own lifeline. Israel sabotaged their own engine. Whatever you image you need, Israel was not going to do what God said told them to do, wanted them to do. But God says, hey, this Sinai covenant, the old covenant, I'm going to make a new one. And it's not going to be written on stone tablets. It's going to be written on your hearts. 
Your sins will be forgiven. You will be restored. You will be redeemed. And you once again will be the means by which the nations come to know me. And so the Old Testament ends with Israel being exiled in Babylon for 70 years. Let me take a side note. You know the famous verse that people like to quote whenever they're having a hard time? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and hope. Do you know who said that? Jeremiah wrote that to the exiles at the beginning of the exile. And if you read that passage, he goes on to say, hey, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, so get used to it. You're going to live and you're going to die there. So pray for the peace of the city. Marry your sons and daughters. Get comfortable because you're going to be in exile for 70 years. But when that 70 years is over, I'm going to bring you back because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you... So that memory verse that a lot of people use, contextually, they need to realize, hey, the plans God has for you may include 70 years of captivity. And you need to be okay with that. Because God's thinking on a much bigger time scale than your current problems. That's just a little aside, but it's one of those verses that gets thrown around out of context. So the context is really important. So Israel, after those 70 years, they come back into the land. They rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. They rebuild the city walls. Ezra and Nehemiah bring different waves of immigrants back. And the Old Testament ends 400 years before Jesus with Israel as a, as a uh, basically limping back into the land, slowly starting to rebuild with a eh, temple that can't even compare to the original, but it's there, waiting for all of this stuff to happen. That's how the Old Testament ends. That's the Old Testament. That's it. The last prophet that speaks to this is Malachi. And the last thing Malachi says is, hey, before all this dreadful day of the Lord stuff that I've predicted before this new covenant, before everything, I'm going to send you my prophet Elijah. And he's going to be the one to turn your hearts back to him. And that's how it ends. Turn the page, Matthew chapter 1. So this is our story. Because if we understand this story, then we see... When you do turn the page, what God wanted to do through Israel in the old covenant by them being faithful and they couldn't do in the new covenant, Jesus does through the Holy Spirit the exact same thing. You see, Jesus patterns himself on my YouTube channel. If you get on YouTube and search Disciple Dojo, one word, I have a video. It's called The Most Important Concept in All of Biblical Theology. And it's all about this concept. Jesus presents himself as if he is Israel. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus calls 12 disciples. Israel came out of Egypt as a baby nation. Jesus literally came out of Egypt as a literal baby. Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. Jesus was tempted in that very same wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights. He succeeds. Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land and went into all kinds of idolatry. Jesus crossed the Jordan at his baptism back into the promised land to redeem Israel from its idolatry. 
Israel was the vine in the Old Testament. God said, I planted a vineyard. I tended it. I wanted it to bear fruit. Instead, it bore thorns and thistles. Jesus comes along and says, I am the vine. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything about Jesus' ministry is saying, I am the culmination of this entire story. And God's plan has not changed. God still wants to reach the nations, but he's not going to do it through people living under tablets of stone laws. He's going to do it through people whose hearts have been renewed and transformed. That is the gospel. And Jesus' death on the cross was Jesus fulfilling the entire sacrificial system of the covenant that could never take away sins because the things that were giving their blood were not the things that had been sinning. They were animals. They were vicarious atonement. God was teaching Israel, hey, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the problem is it's not animals that were sinning. It's us. So whoever pays the ultimate penalty for sin needs to be one of us. So God himself takes on flesh and becomes one of us. He does the things that Israel can't do for himself. He is the servant of Israel who's going to not just redeem Israel, but who's then also going to be a light to the Gentiles. This is, this is the Old Testament. So when we understand the Old Testament, then when somebody shares the gospel, it literally becomes good news. The good news is God is still doing what he's always been doing. But the better news is he's not limiting it to a group of ethnic family members of the people of Abraham called the Jews. He has opened the doors of his people Israel to everyone, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, who is united in Israel's Messiah. So if you are in Jesus, if you're in Jesus, that's the equivalent in the Old Testament of being in Israel. You know, in the Old Testament, not every Israelite was an Israelite. Did you know some of the heroes of the Old Testament were Gentiles? Some of the Israelites were Gentiles? I'll give you an example. Of all the people that left Egypt as adults and entered into the Holy Land as adults, 50% were Gentiles. 50%. Now, that's kind of a sleight of hand because there were only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. But Caleb was a Gentile. Caleb was not an Israelite. He was a Kenizzite. His name means dog. And that's a euphemism for Gentiles. Caleb was a Gentile. There's a whole book of the Bible named after a Gentile. Ruth was a Moabite, not an Israelite. Yet Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. There's never been a point in Israel's history where it was only about being Jewish, only about being Israelite. All who came into the covenant people of God, even in the Old Testament, their ethnicity didn't matter, their faithfulness did. And it's the same in the New Testament, only now to an even greater degree, because it's no longer limited geographically to a people in a region called the Middle East. Now it's worldwide. But that's the promise that God gave all along. That's the promise back in Genesis 12, where we started few minutes ago, that God made to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the gospel 
is inviting people into this story, into the people of God, the same God who is seeking to spread His glory, His goodness, His knowledge, His blessing to all the nations of the earth. The story hasn't changed. The vehicle has changed. It's not the old covenant. Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant. It won't be like the old covenant. So there, where you'll hear sometimes kind of these fringe teachers and they appeal to Hebrew or they may have Israelite in their name and they're going to teach you that you've got to live under the law, you've got to keep the feasts, you've got to keep the Old Testament laws. Anathema, that's garbage. That's heresy. That's a cult. Stay away from them because they're missing the story. They're trying to live in the first part of the story when the second part has arrived and therefore undoing the work of Jesus. Beware of those groups. I have an interview on my YouTube channel with an urban apologist, my friend Mike Holloway up in Detroit, and we talk about some of these groups that he regularly interacts with. Uh, so, so be aware of them, because they are out there. They're going to try to tell you you've got to live under the first part of this. No, 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 no. We live under the second part. We keep the law of the Spirit, not the law written on stone tablets. But guess what? The law written on our hearts, it looks an awful lot like what the law written on stone tablets intended. So by studying those laws written on stone tablets, by studying the Old Testament law, we get a better understanding of the type of God that we serve, and then we can apply it in new settings today. And that's the joy of being an Old Testament teacher. That's what I do on YouTube it, most of the time, is show people how to understand the Old Testament in modern New Covenant life. When you're sharing the gospel, when you're considering your identity, when we're thinking about who we are as God's people, who you are as Open Arms Church, well, guess what? Open Arms Church is part of this group right here. Open Arms Church is in Jesus, hopefully. I know you guys are good enough to know you are. So, Open Arms Church is in Jesus. Every other faithful church in Charlotte is in Jesus. Every other faithful church around the world is in Jesus. Our mission is the same, to bring the nation's knowledge of God. So that's what you're doing at Open Arms. That's what you're doing when you give to this church. And I can say this because this isn't my church, so I can be a little more forceful than Pastor Justin would be. When you give to Open Arms, you are giving into this mission. And the day Open Arms stops doing this mission should be the day you stop giving to them. I don't think that'll ever happen because I know Justin and the leaders. And, and it, but that's how we need to see giving. We're not just giving to keep programs running. We're giving to expand the kingdom. When you serve, if you're not giving financially, but you're giving of your times or your talents, you're coming here at the crack of dawn on a Sunday and setting all this stuff up. You're putting out seats and hopefully praying over each seat that everybody whose butt sits in it is going to be blessed and going to experience the love of God. All of those things are part of this mission. When you tell someone Jesus died for your sins, he gave his life so you could enter into the kingdom of heaven, what you are really telling them, what you should be really telling them, is Jesus wants you in himself, in the family, as part of God's people who are spreading light and life and goodness and the knowledge of God into all corners of the earth. Oh, and as a bonus, if we die before he returns, we get to be with him anyway. Win-win. Not say the prayer, get your get out of hell card, and go about your life as normal. That's not the gospel. 
That may be the American evangelical watered-down version of the gospel that you'll hear sometimes, but that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is 66 books, not 27 books. The gospel is the Old Testament before it was ever the New Testament. And when Peter and Paul and, and Stephen and any of the early apostles that preached, preached the gospel, they preached this storyline and how Jesus was the fulfillment of that storyline. So if you're here and you like this, get on board. If you're not a believer, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, do it. There's no special prayer. I'm not going to do the every head's bow, every eye closed. I mean, I'm not against that. I just don't, that's not my style. The point is, there are people here who will talk to you, church leaders here. This is a local body of Christ. So if you want to give your life to Christ, let them usher you into the kingdom. But when you do that, you're not getting a get out of hell for free card. You're entering into a story that stretches back to the beginning of time. And you're receiving the identity that you were born to have. You were not born to have the identity of a, a North Carolina resident. You were not born to have the identity of a black, a white, a Hispanic person. You weren't born to have the identity of a Republican or a Democrat or, or any of that. None of those are our identity. Your identity is not your sexuality or your self-fulfillment. None of those are our identity. Our identity is we're members of Jesus' body. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and we are the means by which God is using to reach other people. That's the gospel. That's what you enter into. So talk to someone here. If you're watching online, send Pastor Justin a message. Let him know you want to be in. What does it mean? He'll walk you through it. It's not a moment decision. It begins with a moment decision but it's an everyday decision that you have to live out until you see him face to face. This is the story. This is the plot. This is the Hebrew Bible in less than an hour. Thank you for sitting and listening. We're going to end with worship. I'm going to close us with prayer, and then I'm going to pass the mic back to my brother, Sean. But God... I pray that this message, I pray that your story, not my message, but your story, these words that I just did a paltry summary of, I pray that they would penetrate into the hearts of anyone listening. I pray that as people would open your word this week, first of all, that they would open your word this week, and then as they do, they would be confronted by your living presence, your knowledge, your spirit. That's what it's all about. Holy Spirit, inhabit this congregation, not just today on a Sunday, but throughout the entire week. Bless their service, bless their giving, bless the way they love this community. Help them to be a beacon of light within this area of North Charlotte, shining your grace into a dark world, Lord. All the problems, all the things that, that we're concerned about, all of the things that legitimately are problems, we don't want to downplay those, God. You hear our tears. You hear our cries, you know our hardships, you know what it's like when we can't put food on the table this week, you know what it's like when people are living paycheck to paycheck, you know what it's like, the problems and the emotional anxieties, all of those things, Lord, they are real problems, and we don't want to come to church and just shout them away. They're real, and your heart breaks for the pain that your people experience. But at the same time, God, give a glimmer of hope into that darkness that the story's not done, that it's not written, it's not completed yet, that you have great things 
plan. You do know the plans you have for us, Lord, even if they include captivity in Babylon. You're bigger than that. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.